all creatures of our God and King. Father, that's all of us. Your King, your Creator, we're creatures, we're children. So what's that mean? How do we, how do we operationalize what the Wind Symphony just played? Teach us, I pray, clearly, in Jesus' name, amen. So how close are we to an economic collapse? I hold, I hold in my hands a paper from the balance.com website. Opens up. If an economic collapse occurs, it would happen quickly. No one would predict it. The surprise factor is itself one of the causes of a collapse. The signs of imminent failure are difficult for most people to see. Here are seven potential scenarios for the United States. So let me read them to you. Number one. Number one is here on the back. Number one, if the U.S. dollar rapidly loses value, it would create hyperinflation. Now, our inflation rate right now is between 2 and 3%, okay? Hyperinflation. Our friends in Venezuela right now are experiencing that, 121% inflation, possibly going up in 2019 to 10 million percent. Yeah, that's trouble. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, a bank run could force banks to close or even go out of business. Everybody going to the bank at the same time, I want my money now. I'm just not sure. It, it could go out, go out of business, cutting off lending and even cash withdrawals. Number three, the Internet could become paralyzed with a super virus, preventing emails and online transactions, and we could not live without the Internet. Come on, be honest, right? Number four, terrorist attacks or a massive oil embargo could halt interstate trucking and grocery stores would soon run out of food. Trucks are what take our groceries across America. Number five, widespread violence erupts across the nation. That could range from inner city riots, a civil war, or a foreign military attack. It's possible that a combination of these events could overwhelm the government's ability to prevent or respond to a collapse. Number six, some sort of conspiracy. Could be the Federal Reserve, could be something in the executive branch, perhaps even a foreign conspiracy brings the country down because if the government, as it reads here, the economy is run on confidence that debts will be repaid, food and gas will be available when you need it, and that you'll get paid for this week's work. But if a large enough piece of that stops for even several days, it creates a chain reaction that leads to a rapid collapse. All right, number seven. This could cause an economic collapse in the U.S. Natural disasters could cause localized collapse. If Hurricane Irma hit Miami not on the East Coast, but hit Florida on, uh, on the West Coast, it's actually the other way around, if it had gone up the East and not instead gone up, gone up the, uh, the West, Miami would have, it would have been worse than Katrina, and that would be New Orleans. Now listen to this. If the 2019 polar vortex, which we all survived, right? If the vortex had lasted weeks instead of days, cities would have shut down. Many of these extreme weather events are getting worse. So truth is, whether it's an economic collapse or an eco economic crisis or no, no crisis at all, it really doesn't matter because if you're going through personally a financial crisis right now, and you know if you are, that's all that counts. If I'm going through a meltdown financially right now, who cares what's happening to the nation? I had a college student in my office here bawling his eyes out. You know why? Because his parents had loaned them their credit card and he had driven the balance up 10,000 plus and had no way to repay it. It's enough to make a, any grown man cry. 
So you may be the one today. I may be the one tomorrow. Given that we're living on this razor-thin edge of potential economic crisis or collapse, this seems to be the right time to say, are there any proven principles to survive financially? Listen, we did a survey here, here on the campus about four weeks ago thanks to the university's permission. 318 students uh, responded. We have a little group called the uh, Collegiate Council. Where is William sitting? Collegiate Council. And I've been meeting with them Tuesdays at 5 o'clock. So we put this little survey together, went to every student, 318, sent it back. The number two felt need of students at Andrews University, guess what? Financial. Financial. This little series is coming out of that. Number one, we're going to get to that the first... Opening Sabbath of the uh, new school year. Collegiate Council putting the entire series together. I want to go to a powerful principle embedded in a story that begins like this. Once upon a time, there were two brothers. One was named Harley and the other was named Harry. And by the way, that's not Harley Davidson and that's not Prince Harry. But they were brothers nonetheless. One day a man very much admired by the brothers was their house guest. So Harley, being the more culinarily skilled of the two, is whipping up a cyclone of delectable food in the kitchen. And Harry, never drawn to kitchens at all, is in the sunroom of their apartment sitting down with the man. And the man has obviously uh, captured the attention and enamoring Harry because Harry's doing less talking and the man more. Until finally... Harley comes exploding out of that kitchen and he interrupts the conversation and he talks to the guest. I don't suppose you've noticed that my brother is sitting there with you while I'm slaving away in the kitchen. Would it be all right if you put a pause on this little chit-chat and send him into the kitchen with me? Now look, I suppose this story of two brothers, Harley and Harry, could be a story of two sisters, Martha and Mary. But I switched it around for a reason. Because every time we come, we guys come to the story of Martha and Mary, we say, oh, that's a, that's a girl story. I'm not even into that. The story has nothing to do with gender. It could be boys, it, brothers, it could be sisters. The story has everything to do with generation. And in fact, it has our generation written all over it. Now, I want to go to that. I want to go to that story with you. So open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Luke, chapter 10. I'm in the NIV today. Whatever translation you have is fine with me. Didn't bring a Bible? You got it on the phone, don't, don't have it, then grab the pew Bible in front of you. What's the page number there? The page number would be 699. Let's go. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Oh, boy, put that up. Isolate that one, please, on the screen. Martha was distracted. She must have been a third millennial. I tell you what, you go to Google and you type in the word distractions, man, there are thousands of sites dealing with what plagues us today. In fact, I went through blog after blog, and it seems pretty clear to me that there are three top distractions, and I want to share those with you right now. So grab your study guide. It's in your worship bulletin. Pull it out. I hope you got it up here as well. It should be tucked away in that worship bulletin. And those of you who are watching right now, let me put a website on the screen for you. Those of you that are live streaming are already there, of course, but 
You're watching on television. There you see it right there, tucked away, very tiny, www.newperceptions.tv. So this is a brand new series beginning right now. Title of the series, How to Survive the Coming Economic Crisis. Part one is entitled, How to Survive Your Own Financial Crisis. You go there, it says study guide. You'll have the identical study guide. And here come our friendly ushers. If you didn't get one, hold your hand up and the ushers in the balcony as well. We'll make sure that you have one. But let's go. Come on. What's everybody calling distraction out there? Jot it down, please. Distraction number one. And by the way, these all start with S. Distraction number one would be what I have in my hip pocket. What's that? That's my smartphone, of course. It's a smartphone. Yep, that is a source of distraction for the entire human race. And everybody's agreed. Distraction number two starts with an S. Can you guess it before it goes up? Oh, it already went up. Social media. Social media. Hey, jot this number down, will you? Amazing. The average adult in this country spends 5.9 hours online per day. We're talking about adults, 5.9. How about the average teen? Jot it down. Nine hours online every day. Oh, nine hours. Where do you get nine hours? I don't know. You just get them. (laughs) All right. Uh, Talking about distractions, both adults and teens... A UC Irvine study found out, jot this down, we discovered that it takes us 23 minutes, 15 seconds, jot that down, 23 minutes, 15 seconds to get back on track after we've been distracted, whether we're in a class or whether we're at work or whether we're at the, in our dorm room, it doesn't matter. When that ding goes, our mind goes immediately to that notification, right? Of course. 23 minutes to get back into gear. Oh, Great. So there they are. But Martha was distracted. We just read that. No wonder. But there's a huge distraction that has almost become a ball and chain for you and me. And this is distraction number number one is smartphone. Number two is social media. This one starts with an S. What is it? Put it on the screen, please. Distraction number three, stuff. Stuff. Come on. Isn't that the truth? Stuff. We're distracted by stuff. Jot down these wild numbers. USA Today this month. Wild numbers. You're going to have to keep your hand moving here. Here comes stat number one. 430 million credit cards are now in circulation in the U.S. of A. 430 million. Do you know, understand that there are under 330 million of us from babies to the aged? That means every human being in the United States could have a credit card. We'd have 100 million more left over in case we wanted to do more shopping. You can't believe it. 430 million. Keep going. Number two, consumer debt last year. What are you talking about, Dwight? Well, this would be auto loans, student loans. Oh, we got one coming up on student loans because that's huge. Auto debt, student loans, uh, personal loans, and credit cards. No mortgages. No house mortgages. None of that kind of stuff. Okay? What's the... We hit a new high this last year. Jot it down. Just over $4 trillion. dollars. That's a four with 12 zeros. You get a little writer's camp cramp driving those zeros onto that line, but go ahead and jot them down. Four trillion, not billion, four trillion in consumer debt. Anybody here? Oh, come on. Time out. Time out. Look, we're so used to hearing trillion, we don't even know what to do with it. Anybody here know how much a trillion dollars is? Here it is. A trillion dollars would be if you spent one dollar a second. I just wish you'd try me. Do an experiment with me. Just let me do that. Give me the dollars, please. If you spent one dollar a second, you would have in a day 86,400 bucks. All right? If you did that for a year, you would have 31.5 million dollars. At the rate of spending, 
that rate, it would take you for one trillion, over it, write it down, 32,000 years to pay it off. 32,000 doing this, a dollar a second. You can't believe it. To spend, and now this is not, this is four trillion. So four times that would take you 128,000 years. That's longer than most of us here are going to live. Now I'm serious. Can you believe that? Four trillion consumer debt. But now, here's another one. Thank you, USA Today. Here's another one. We're, let, let's, let's ask, what is consumer spending like? So we're talking about food. We're talking about gas. We're talking about clothing. We're talking about going to Colorado to go snow skiing. We're talking about uh, technology, electronics, and we're talking about gadgets, 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 because that's where we spend most of our money, right? All-time high last year. Jot it down. $13 trillion, $32 billion, $300 million spent by Americans last year. That's just consumer spending in America. <laughs> At a dollar per second, that would take you 416,000 years to spend. Go figure. Turns out that we have a lot of wants, we have a lot of needs, and we've got a lot of stuff. Joshua Becker, who considers himself a minimalist, he has a, a, a blog called Becoming Minimalist. And he's run by a whole set of stats, and I'm going to run by it. There's a website in the study guide. You can go because there are 21 of these. that I've just cherry-picked a bunch of them. Let me run them by you real quick here. According to the L.A. Times, there are 300,000 items in the average American home. That's a spoon, a fork, you know, 300,000, okay? British research, according to the Telegraph, found that the average 10-year-old owns 238 toys but plays with just 12 daily. Those would be my two granddaughters, so I'm telling you what. They got... Hundreds of toys, but play with 12 a day. Um, moreover, this is UCLA, 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the world's toys. <laughs> Go figure. Here's a, here, here's a fourth one. Oh, psychology today. Americans spend more on shoes, jewelry, and watches, $100 billion, than on higher education. <laughs> Is, is, is another. Number five, shopping malls outnumber high schools in America. Yeah, you already knew that one. 93% of teenage girls rank shopping as their favorite pastime, according to Affluenza. My. What's this one? Number six, Americans spend $1.2 trillion, remember how much a trillion is, annually, according to the Wall Street Journal, on non-essential goods. In other words, items they do not need. $1.2 trillion. You didn't need that. You didn't need that. That's why you got a two-car garage, because you don't need it. The cars are outside, by the way. That's America. My, one more. The $800 billion home organization industry has more than doubled in size since the early 2000s, growing at a staggering rate of 10% every year. Leading Joshua Becker to conclude, his words on the screen, the numbers paint a jarring picture of excessive consumption and unnecessary accumulation. Fortunately, the solution is not difficult. The invitation, is to, own, the invitation to own less is an invitation, oh, I love this, to freedom, intentionality, and passion. And it can be discovered at your nearest drop-off center. <laughs> we got neighbor to neighbor here in town. You got goodwill all over this county. Just get rid of it. You don't have to have all of that. Not in Lodi or in Berrien Springs. Give it away. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
In his classic commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, boy, did he nail it. This is back in, in the 1930s when he wrote that book. Did he nail it on the head or what? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, take a look at this, jot it down. Earthly gifts, he writes, are given to be used, not to be collected. You use them, you don't collect them. Keep reading. The disciple, that would be you and me, must receive his, her portion from God every day. If she stores it up as a permanent possession, she spoils not only the gift, but write it down herself, himself as well. For we set our hearts on our accumulated wealth, and that makes it a barrier between us and God. Last line. Oh, this is good. Where our treasure is, whatever your treasure is, Where our treasure is, there is our trust, there is our security, there is our consolation and our God. Final line, hoarding is idolatry. And that was before we hoarded. Can you believe it? 300,000 items. But Martha was distracted. Martha, Martha, you are distracted. Yep. She must be just like us. Or we must be just like her. Let's read it again. We stopped it in verse 40, so let's pick it up at verse 40. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me, please. And Jesus replies, Martha, Martha. He only says, he only doubles the name when he loves you. Simon Peter, Simon, Simon. Saul, the persecutor, Saul, Saul. Little boy Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. He doubles your name when he loves you. Apparently, you can be a hoarder and be distracted by the Lord knows what, but he still loves us. Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. (laughs) Wow, there it is. Ladies and gentlemen, jot it down. The number one life principle. No, don't jot it down yet. The number one life principle embedded in Jesus' words to Martha, embedded in Mary's response to Jesus. And you know what? Jesus takes that principle that he just has spoken to us, and he makes it the peak, the summit of the Sermon on the Mount. Incredible. Look at this. You know, you've learned this since you were a kid. Let's read it out loud together. Can you see it on the screen up here, Ben? Let's read Matthew 6, 33, right in the heart of the, of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Let's read it out loud together. But seek first His and His and all these things will be given to you as well. Now you jot it down. The number one life principle that Jesus taught is make God first. That's it. That's why Jesus pointed to Mary, by the way. He's not scolding Martha. But God is a loving provider of everything that we need, (laughs) even of everything that we want. It's all from Him. So seek Him. Make God numero uno in your life is what Jesus is trying to say to Martha. And everything else, look at the distractions. God will take care of it. Oh, come on. Let's do that one more time. Matthew 6, the number one life principle on the screen, out loud together. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, 
And all these things will be given to you as well. My. Oh, what things? Jesus has just outlined the basic human needs of shelter, clothing, and food. He says, you'll have it. He didn't say all your wants. Hey, yo, Dwight, everything you want, I'll give you. No, he says, I'll give you all, you, all that you need. I'll take care of you. That's what it is. I promise. I put my kingdom on the line. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will provide, my God will provide all your needs according to his riches and glory, Philippians 4.19. So, what, yo, 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 Dwight, please. I mean, what's this have to do with uh, how to survive your own financial crisis? Good question. Everything in the world to do with it. You know why? Because if we could cast this, tr- this story into a financial strategy... What Mary is doing here out of great love and devotion for Jesus is putting all her money at the feet of Jesus. It, was just, it would be just like Mary took all her possessions, she took all of herself, and she took all of her little monies, and she put them in a little bag, tied, a, tied a, a ribbon around the neck, and she puts it down as she sits down at the feet of Jesus. That's what's happening here. Make God first. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, yo, girl. You are distracted by a lot. Mary has chosen what will never be taken away from her. Make God. Nobody can take God away from you, ever. What did Bonhoeffer say just a moment ago on the screen one more time? Where our treasure is, there is our trust, our security, our consolation, and our God. Whatever you treasure is your God. No, I'm serious. Whatever you treasure is your God. Mary made him first, and then she put it all at Jesus' feet. In fact, do you know what? In order to operationalize this great life principle, make God first, God actually invented something. This is really cool. It's as old as the hills. I don't know if you've heard this word before, and sometimes it's better to spell it just so that you can get it because you're not quite sure how to pronounce it. So let me me just spell the word out for you. The first letter of the word is T. The second letter of the word is I. The third letter of the word is T. The fourth letter is H. And the fifth letter is E. Now, some are saying, how do you pronounce that? Tithe? Tithe? No, that's not pronounced tithe. That's tithe. <laughs> that's tithe. We don't like that word. Come on. Level with me. We don't like that word. It feels like somebody's trying to control me. We don't like tithe. So we just ought to call it tithe and it wouldn't bother us. Tithe. It's old as the hills. Father Abraham. You remember that song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Did they sing that down at Southern too? Probably not. We're still singing it up here. <laughs> not, not. Okay. Father Abraham on the screen. Genesis. What is this? Genesis chapter 14. What does it say about Father Abraham? Then Abram gave him, the priest Melchizedek, a tenth of everything, and it's called the tithe. Okay. Along comes great, comes his grandson, who was great, Jacob. And Jacob's talking to God right here. All of that you give me, I will, of all of it, I will give you what? What does it say? I will give you what? A tenth. Jesus calls it the tithe. In fact, the Lord Jesus even spoke about it. Put the Lord Jesus on the screen for us, please. This ought you to have done. He's talking about tithing without leaving the other undone. He's talking about loving, Matthew 23, 23. Trust me, folks, it is a very big deal with God. I mean, Jesus ought to have known he's God in the flesh. He got it right, of course, because he invented it. 
Take a look at this spectacular promise. I'm telling you, it's on the last page of the Old Testament, but you got to see this. If you've never seen it, you're seeing it today with wide open eyes. Go to the last page of the Old Testament. So that would be the last page of uh, uh, Malachi. Yeah, go to Malachi chapter 3. Take a look at this, will you? Amazing. (laughs) Unbelievable promise. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, God speaking, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me. Okay, check it out. Prove, prove me. You make me prove it to you. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. You can't believe it. God, who would not want to be standing right here, wherever you are, and the floodgates of heaven suddenly open over your meager little cash? collection. They open over your tiny little dorm room or house. They open over your little old you life. Who wouldn't want the, the floodgates of heaven to open straight on, straight on top of you? Wouldn't you want that? But of course, that's what he's saying. I will, I will take care of you. I'm going to deliver you from financial crisis. You're saying to me, Dwight, it doesn't say a word about being delivered from financial crisis. That's because we always have stopped reading, and I'm guilty of this. We've always stopped with verse 10. We said, now, it's, 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 it, don't go to verse 11. No, we're going to verse 11. Look at verse 11. God's still speaking. He said, I'm opening the windows of heaven for you, the floodgates. And, by the way, in verse 11, he says, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. Do you know what those crops were? This is written to an agrarian society. Those crops were cash. Got a farmer right here. Those crops were cash, called a cash crop. They live off of that. If the, if the, if the crop goes away, I'm dead meat. So God says, listen, don't you worry about your, a financial crisis. I will prevent pests from devouring your cash crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Keep reading. Then he says, all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. I'm going to take care of you. You're not in a crisis now, but I, I see a crisis coming your way, financial, and I'm going to get you, get you ready. I will prevent a crisis. I will deliver you in the midst of a crisis. I'm putting myself on the line. You test me. So we always stop with verse 10. Why don't we read about the cash crops? I'll take care of your finances. My, are you serious? Yeah. When we tithe, it's our way of saying to God, here, here, here. It's our way of saying to God, okay, God, I make you my C-suite. You ever heard of a C-suite? Some of you are shaking your heads because you say, well, what is this, some kind of sweet candy or something? No, I'm putting it on the screen here. Here's the word C-suite right there, C-suite. Our son, Kirk just moved about four weeks ago, along with his lovely wife, Chelsea, and our two precious granddaughters, Ella and Isabel. They just moved from Salem, Oregon to Kettering, Ohio. Kirk just got hired by the Kettering Health System. He's going to be the director of physician recruiting for nine hospitals and 140 clinics. And he has a team that he's now leading. Oh, I want to tell you something. The big deal for us, of course, is that now we were just there helping him move last Sunday. He, now he's only four hours and 15 minutes away instead of 2,100 miles away. And that's a huge difference. 
So Kirk works for this health system. These are the way, this is the way health systems work. They have C-suites. Universities, some of them, have C-suites. Mm-hmm. 500, Fortune 500 companies, they have C-suites. What's that? Let's run them by. Let's just see if you know what the C-suite uh, is composed of. What is a COO? By the way, every, every office in a C-suite begins with the word chief. You can only sit in that suite if you're chief something. Okay, so what's a COO? Come on. What's a COO? Huh? Yeah, chief operating officer. Good. What's a CIO? Chief information officer. What's a CFO? Chief finance. Yeah, we got that one. What's a CEO? Chief executive. All right. The C-suite gives us an opportunity when we return our little one-tenth of our income to God. It gives us the opportunity to invite God to become our, sweet, our C-suite God. God, I want you to be my chief operating officer. I want you to be the chief information officer. I want you to be the chief financial officer. I need you to be my chief executive officer. God, I'm making you the entire C-suite. Everything I have is yours now. Isn't that something? He's our C-suite God, and that's pretty sweet, isn't it? Yeah. When we tithe, we place all our meager resources into his nail-scarred hands, and we declare to the one who died for us, I entrust all that I am. I entrust to you all that I have into your keeping. Yeah. But truth in advertising, I have to do this. It would not be right for me to skip two more verses. I owe it to you. They're the two verses that precede this beautiful verse 10 promise. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. God is speaking. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, come on, God, how are we robbing you? God replies, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Whoa. Hey, listen, ladies and gentlemen, God is not a genie in a bottle. He's not a Santa Claus with a sleigh. He's the almighty king, the Lord of angel armies. That's what Lord of hosts means. He's the Lord of angel armies. And guess what? He loves you. He's crazy about you. That's why he calls you by your name twice. Martha, Martha. What's your name? He calls you by that name twice. He's crazy about you. He emptied his kingdom to win your heart one day. And he's just praying, I hope it's soon. I hope it's soon. But you know what? We have to love him back. Oh, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like to have, it, have to love him back. Well, don't ever get married then, please. Don't ever get married because you have to love him back. It's just the way love works. It's two-way. So he invented this little operationalized make God first strategy. So that he can say, hey, show me. I, I, I hear your lips. You, see, you sing these wonderful praise songs on the screens, and you got the in- symphony playing with you, and oh, how I love God. He said, I've heard you sing these words a long time. Show me. Show me. This is the most concrete and simple way he has. Just show me. Does he need your quarters and nickels and dimes? Are you crazy? He owns the whole universe. This has nothing to do with him and everything to do with you. And if you say no to him, I don't need C-suite, thank you. No CFO, no CEO. You just go ahead. I'll call you when I need you. And that's usually when we call. 
He's saying, I want you to love me. Come on, love on me. I love you. That's what it is, folks. Of course, he used a strong word, curse. He got our attention immediately, didn't he? I'll curse you. You know what it means to curse? (laughs) It's nothing like we're thinking. He says, okay, you don't want me, huh? You're waving me off, girl? You're waving me off? Okay. I'm going to take about 10 steps back. You won't even see me. You won't even know I'm here. I'm going to get right back here so that I'm not in your way. And guess what? The moment there is a vacuum and the sweet, sea sweet leaves, trust me, slithering in comes the enemy of us all who says, okay, financial bondage, here we go. Ball and chain, gotcha. And he's 10 paces back. You told me. You waved me off. You told me you didn't want me. I honor you. I honor you. What a God. This is nothing about cursing. This is about you getting the curse of having the other guy, your C-suite, because you can only have one C-suite. You can't have two C-suites. The other guy has a whole horde of demons that he uses with him. You get one or the other, so make up your mind. Quit playing this dilly-dally, back-and-forth stuff. You're killing yourself, and you're breaking God's heart. My, that's all it is. So, friend, I don't know who you are. I love your face, but I'm telling you, don't wave him off. Do not, for the sake of you and the sake of God, don't wave him off. We're talking about a meager one-tenth. Do you know how much that is in your income? It's nothing. <laughs> but that's okay. I'm saying, see, sweet, all I have and all I am is yours. Make God first. That's what Mary did. Martha was distracted. She finally learned. She got it. Oh, why wouldn't I in humble gratitude return to God what is already His? I'd be a fool not to have Him, my sea sweet God, wouldn't I? Yeah. I'm going to end with this. It's my favorite quotation in Desire of Ages, my favorite book in the world on the life of Jesus. I end with this. Put it on the screen. Satan has represented God as selfish and oppressive, as claiming all and giving nothing, as requiring the service of His creatures for His own glory and making no sacrifice for their good. But the gift of Christ reveals the Father's heart. Having undertaken our redemption, He will spare how much? Nothing, not a zero. He will spare nothing, however dear, which is necessary to the completion of His work. Favor is heaped upon favor, gift upon gift. Now write it down. The, the what? Say it again. Come on. The what? The whole treasury of heaven is open to those He seeks to save. Yeah, wow. Wow. Having collected the riches of the universe and laid open the resources of infinite power, he gives them all into the hands of Christ. And he says, all these are for man and woman. Use these gifts to convince them that there is no love greater than mine in earth or heaven, that their greatest happiness will be found in loving me. Yeah. Yeah. End quote. Is there a financial crisis coming? (laughs) It's not for me to say, because you may be in it right now. And I may be in it tomorrow, but this much I know, when you return God's tithe, you make Him first, 
And when you make him first, you have made the wisest financial decision you will ever make in your life forever. Amen.